Good morning, Harlem. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Well, we're going to uh, finish up part two of our message from two weeks ago, Reignited Our Passion for God. Let's go to God with the word of prayer and let's uh, jump right into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, we thank you again for another day. Uh, we thank you for our worship thus far, God. We, we really appreciate uh, you waking us up this morning. We're totally grateful for the sacrifice uh, made for us on the cross, God. And we do pray that you'll help us to live each, each and every day of our lives, uh, showing our gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. God, help us to reignite our passion in our hearts and our minds and our souls for you. God, I pray that you help us to not get so caught up in the everyday hustle and bustle of life that we edge you out. God, help us to make you the forefront of our, our mind. Help us to make you the center of our worship. God, help us to keep you the center of our universe. And God, I pray that everything that, that fights and competes for our time with you will be, as Paul says, rubbish. And I pray, God, that my words will be your words today. Help us to leave here with a deeper conviction about reigniting our passion for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I left off at uh, point number two. We talked about so far a few passion killers if you're joining us for the first time. Uh, we started a sermon about two weeks ago. Uh, we talked about reigniting our passion for God. First thing we looked at was an unbalanced schedule, how our schedule can sometimes steal that passion. If we're working too much, we're too exhausted, if we're too busy, but then also if we're just lazy, and how that can also steal our passion for God. Then secondly, we talked about an unused talent, how sometimes we have a gift, we have the gifts that God has given us, but we don't get a chance to use it. And sometimes we don't know how to use that gift. And I encourage you, if you haven't figured it out yet, come see me and I can give you something to use your gift for. All right? Uh, we had some single moms who was praising Jesus when I mentioned brothers in the, in, in the church who have skills to work on automobiles. We got to help a brother or sister out. And don't expect much in return. All right? Just tell them it's using my, my gifts for God. And today I want to talk about the final three uh, passion killers. And then next week, God willing, we will look at some American idols. The things that Satan puts in our path to steal our heart from God. And we're going to start a new series next week. So the first, uh, the next thing we'll look at today is unconfessed sin. Now this is a big one. Unconfessed sin. You think rob you of your joy your confidence, and your passion more quickly than guilt. You know, with guilt in our lives, the guilt of sin in our lives, we don't walk around thinking, well, I have sin in my life, I'm a guilty person, and, you know, but everybody does it. Sometimes we do often rationalize holding on to our little secret pet sins. And it really gnaws at us. You know, we come to church, and maybe you'll hear someone share about something in the communion, or maybe you'll talk to someone in fellowship, or maybe you sat in a Bible study, and you heard someone get challenged in that very sin that is gnawing away at your soul. 
And we sit quietly because we know I have not let this go. Nothing kills our passion more than guilt. But you know, here's the truth about us human beings. We can't feel enthusiasm and guilt at the same time. You can't feel guilt and passion for God at the same time because guilt by its very definition robs you of passion. Look over in Psalm 38. Psalm 38. Yeah, I love David. I love reading the Psalms because David keeps it real. David doesn't hold anything back. He, he lets whatever is in his heart, he, he feels that type of confidence in his relationship with God. He can just say what's on his heart. Look what he says here in Psalm 38. It says, my guilt has what? Overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not sound like excitement to me. That doesn't sound like an enthusiastic person to me. Look at verse 6. I am bowed down and brought very low all day long. I go about mourning. That doesn't sound like passion to me. Guilt is painful. Have you ever had your computer crash on you? That's frustrating, isn't it? I've had to have a, a brother, Jelani, come over one time, you know, a couple years ago. My computer crashed, and I was just devastated because he did all my work on this computer, and then my daughter does all her schoolwork, and my wife works on this. And you know, when you, you know, when you got, you know, two women, you know, you got you to make sure you please, because otherwise you'll go crazy, all right? So everything is on this computer. And I'm like, I tried everything, Google, YouTube, everything. And I said, you know what, I need to get a professional in here. So I called up my brother Jelani and said, bro, I need your help. Computer crashed, nothing, couldn't access anything. And this brother came in and saved me just like Jesus did on the cross. But we're not made to live with guilt. Guilt is like a computer that crashes. God did not make us. He did not design us to carry around guilt in our lives. God made us to deal with it quickly. He sent Jesus to earth to die on the cross to say, I want to give you a gift. And that gift is the freedom from guilt. Guilt makes us insecure. Guilt makes us paranoid. We come to church, we hear a sermon, we assume that somebody told a preacher about us. That was my first sermon, my first experience with this church. I said, these guys went and told this dude. And I was angry. And I went and they introduced me to the guy and I was nervous because I didn't want to see him because he knew all my secrets that I entrusted to these knuckleheads. And then he tells me, I didn't know any of this. Yeah, right. You come to church, you think everybody's talking about you. Guilt makes you insecure. 
When you hear somebody mention something or a point in a sermon or illustration, you think it's about you. Like I sit around thinking, who can I expose today? That's what guilt does. You watched enough crime movies to know. You see how nervous a criminal sits around cops when they're, oh my goodness, it's a fuzz. They're sweating and getting nervous and all sorts of nonsense. Why? Because they're guilty. They're guilty. And you know what? Here's the thing. That's a good thing. That you respond that way. Because it means that you still have a conscience. That means that there's still hope. I get nervous around the people who are guilty and can go on with life as nothing has ever happened. That means they have a hard heart. Jesus was sent to give us a gift, the freedom from guilt. Some of us here today are trying to keep our enthusiasm. We're trying to come. We sing our songs. We're singing all off key. We, we can't even sing the words with any meaning or passion. Because there's guilt of sin in our hearts. You can't say, I promised the Lord, because you didn't promise. You're not keeping your promise. You promised that you would live a life of honesty. That you would strive for a pure heart and a pure mind. You can't even sing the words. Because you're guilty. And Jesus is saying, why? Why are you trying to fake it? I gave you a gift. You're trying to keep your passion alive, but the guilt keeps crashing your system. You know, it's always some corrupted file or something that causes computers to crash. And when you get in there, you identify that file, you isolate it, you deal with it, everything is, my, my computer's, Jelani added about another five years to my computer. Just by isolating that one thing that was causing it to crash. He deleted. He got rid of the corrupted files. We're no different. We need to isolate the sin in our lives. We need to deal with it. We need to let Jesus delete it so that we can get our systems up and running again. See, fortunately, this is a problem that can be resolved quickly. You can do something about it right now. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait till Easter. You don't have to wait until Christmas to get yourself together. You can do something about it right now. Look over in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I've been laid up all week. I had a lot of thinking to do. I had nothing else to do. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sin, sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise. To confess simply means that you agree with God. You say, yes, you are absolutely right. I did sin. Forgive me. I agree with you. And I want to begin to live a different life today. Please, free me from this guilt. It, when you confess your sin, it means that you're agreeing with God. Because when you read down, it says if we confess our sin, we say that we're without sin, we're, we're a liar. We're calling him a liar. So it's just simply agreeing with God. Yes, I did it. I said it. I thought it. I felt it. 
I denied it. I ignored it. Yes, I'm guilty. Now take away my guilt. Take it away. So that I can be passionate for you once again. My encouragement to you today is don't wait. Don't wait. Sometimes we carry around guilt for a long time. You shouldn't carry it around for a minute. You shouldn't carry it around for an hour, especially when you're surrounded by other Christians trying to do the right thing. Nobody here can judge you. Nobody here can cast a stone. We all got something to confess. We all got guilt that we need to be freed from. I'm willing to bet you talk to somebody today say, hey, I need to get something off my heart. I've been carrying this around for a long time. Please hear me out. Help me through this. They'll be like, all right, you go first. Let's take turns. I'd be worried about people who don't confess to me. I can't be the only one sinful here. What about you, bro? What can I pray for for you? I'm good. No, you're not. Now you're lying. I'm going to pray for that right there. Here's what someone taught me and I live by. If it doesn't leave your mouth, it doesn't leave your heart. If it does not leave your mouth, it will not leave your heart. There's a reason why Jesus wants us to confess Jesus is Lord. There's something with hearing yourself say it that carries weight. You need to hear yourself confess your sin in order to embrace the freedom of being freed from it. When people, when criminals stand before a judge, they need to hear innocent, not guilty. They don't want to just say, all right, court is adjourned. Well, what's the verdict? They want to hear those words, not guilty. And the only way you can do that is you got to confess and get open. Number four, number four, there's a fourth cause for a loss of passion in our lives, and that's unresolved conflict. This is something I had to battle with oftentimes in my walk with God. Conflict just drains the passion right out of you, doesn't it? I mean, you start your day, everything is going great, you fly out of bed, you don't hit the snooze button, you get right up, you're just excited, you can't wait to start your day, right? You confess some sin, you're not feeling guilty, and now you're just ready to start the day off. Jump in the shower, eat your breakfast, you're ready. And on your way out the door, you and your wife, you and the kids, or maybe your roommate, or maybe it's your parents. Yes, kids, parents do sin. And all of a sudden, the zippity is gone out your doodah. You are ready to just have you a wonderful day. And that person just jacked it up for you. And now, you got to carry this conflict all the way on the bus, all the way on the train, into more conflict when you get at your job, right? Conflict takes passion right out of our lives. 
Some of us here today are in situations at home or at work where the conflict is constant. Maybe you live with an unbelieving spouse. And instead of supporting your faith, there's conflict. Maybe they shoot down your beliefs. Maybe they disagree. Maybe they lost their passion. Maybe they were once passionate and lost it. And when you go home, you have to deal with that daily. Or maybe you go to work and their co-workers there who instead of giving you an attentive ear to the gospel, they don't want to hear it. They could care less if you go to church. They could care less if you read your Bible. They make it a point to get under your skin just to see if you lose your religion. I've been there. I actually had to leave because I felt my passion was dying. How do you keep your passion in situations like that? I'll tell you, there's three passion killers in those situations. When it comes to conflict, you've got to really fight to guard your heart against. The first is resentment. The second is jealousy. And the third is lingering anger. We don't often talk a whole lot about jealousy. But the Bible has a lot to say about resentment, jealousy, and, and anger. Let's look at a couple scriptures in Job chapter 5. Job chapter 5. You know, I remember, <laughs> I remember confessing I was jealous. Uh, I was feeling jealous towards another evangelist. You know, I was confessing it to another evangelist. And man, I felt like, good Lord. I, you know, I just didn't realize how bad he was like, brother. And he had this intense look in his face. He said, jealousy is an ugly sin. And I was like, oh. And I just felt like this. And he's like, it poisons us. He said, it divides us. I mean, it was like, because, you know, you say jealousy, you know, we, we take pride in stuff. I'm a jealous man. I don't like nobody looking at my woman. We take pride in some sin, right? Oh, and we all, oh, he's so jealous. You know, it's like women find that flattering that their husband or their boyfriend, you know, gets a little jealous. But I didn't feel that way after confessing to this brother. I'm like, man, I need to take this a lot more seriously, man. And you know, Job chapter 5, listen to what it says about resentment. Job chapter 5, verse 2. Resentment kills a fool. And envy slays the simple. Look over at chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 4 says, You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger... Is the earth to be abandoned for your sake? Or must the rocks be moved from their place? I mean, you're so angry that the earth has to leave you alone. People, everybody's got to get out of your way. The rocks, you're going to pick them up and throw them. They're like, don't leave me alone. They're rolling out of the way. Because of your anger. That's intense. The rock's got to get out your way. You know, here's the thing. You decide when it comes to resentment and jealousy and anger when to let it go. That's your choice. It's your choice. 
You decide how long you keep it. You decide how far it goes. You decide how angry you get. You know, I had to challenge myself to get back to memorizing scriptures. And not just for the sake of, but scriptures that really anchor my soul to the truth. I found myself wrestling with anger. And I had to go back and memorize Proverbs 29:11. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. You know, when you're angry, you get so deceived. You think you can beat the whole world up until you meet that one person, that one unsuspecting person who brings you down to a five-year-old boy because you were so foolish, you thought you could beat everybody. You thought that everybody's going to be intimidated by your, your frowned brows and your hunched up. There's very few people that'd be scared of that. That's why a wise person, a wise person keeps themselves under control because you never know who is losing their mind out there. Who's looking for a reason to blow off steam? And you might be that candidate if you don't keep yourself under control. I remember a brother sharing the story with me. There was a brother who worked for UPS. He's driving his truck. Somebody cut, off, cut in front of him. And he got out the car and he was yelling at the guy. And the guy was like, what? And he was like, what? And they got into it. And the brother got beat up. Maybe he thought Jesus would go fight his battles. But he wasn't wise in that situation. <laughs> Jesus, why? I bet you he was calling Jesus after that first couple punches to his head. But I'm telling you, you never know. You never know, man. After that, I thought, you know what, maybe I need to, you know, work on my anger but see this is why forgiveness is so important this is something you got to understand about God God cannot take away something you won't let go we say Lord let, take away this resentment he's not going to just magically take it away from you you got to let it go you got to give it to God Psalm 55, 22, I cast my anxiety, cast my cares on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. You can't. You've got to cast it. You've got to throw him on the God. If you hold on to anger, God's not going to take it away. Because it shows him that you're not ready to let it go. See, the resentment that we have in our lives, it's not hurting the person that you're resentful against. They may not even know you're resentful. They're off on va their vacation enjoying themselves and you're sitting there stewing. They're coming to church and they're singing, be with me, Lord, with a clean conscience. And you're sitting there, you can't even remember the words. And you just stop clapping all together. You hadn't taken communion in weeks because you hadn't let this thing go. You got to let it go. And look, don't bring up something that happened 50 years ago because honestly, you're going to set yourself up for even more hurt. Now, I'm not saying don't deal with conflict. 
But there is a slight chance that person may not remember the event because they moved on. But it's like a burnt Blu-ray disc in your mind. It's, it feels as if it happened last week and it happened maybe 15, 20 years ago. But because you keep playing it over and over and over, you, re, you remember every line. You can even say it backwards, what they said to you. Because you've played it over so many times. And that person is like, man, you know what? I wish I could really remember what, you, what I did, what I said, but I, wow, you've been carrying it around for 20 years. I'm so sorry. But it's hard for a person to be sincere when they don't remember. And this is why dealing with things immediately, it sets both of you up because nobody wants to walk around with someone having something against them. Someone silently stewing, oh, so that's why you don't hug me. That, oh, then they start putting things together. That, oh my goodness, that's why you didn't come to our birthday party? What? And then you start to feel foolish that you carried around for so long. And it was so easy to let go. If you want the passion to be restored in your heart, you have to forgive people. If you want to be used by God, you have to move forward. You've got to let things go. God can't work in the heart that is bitter, resentful, and full of anger. How else are you going to show the love? It's only a matter of time before you hit that wall again. He's like, why can't I get past this? Well, think back. Is there any unresolved conflict in your heart? Because if there is, you're going to be very limited to how far God can take you. And lastly, an undernourished spirit will kill your passion. An undernourished spirit will kill your passion. Every day, you face all kinds of circumstances that conspire to extinguish your spirit and shrivel your heart. You're going to get up tomorrow to a whole new set of distractions. So we have to intentionally nourish our spirit. Because if you don't, nobody else is going to. Sunday, a, a, even the best Sunday sermon you have heard in your life will only carry you but so far. Our memories are not built that way. We can't retain everything. And so, although you may feel like, man, that really got me going, you need, some, you need fuel. That's why we don't eat once a week. You need daily nourishment to keep going. You got to feed your soul. You have to intentionally, you know, go about your day staying connected to God. Well, James, how do I do that? Well, I got five simple things you can do. You might want to write this down. You need times of worship with God every day. Let me tell you, I was laid up back killing me, could barely sit straight to sit up and read my, and let me, every temptation in me was like, bro, look, you're in pain, just lay down, God understands. Uh, right, but no. 
I got to read my Bible. Because I know where my mind can go is when I'm not connected to God. Even in pain, we got to fight to stay connected to God. That private worship is important. Secondly, you need fellowship with other believers. I cannot stress this enough. We need to be around a community of believers. The Bible says that, you know, Paul quotes the, the saying of the Corinthians. Bad company corrupts good character. You've even heard it say that you become like those you surround yourself with. It's only a matter of influence. It's about influence. If you're around worldly people all the time, you eventually will become worldly. Even the best of us, the most spiritual among us, will find it hard. There's a reason Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Because he had worldly people constantly around him. Not all were bad. Some were needy. But I believe Jesus, being a man also in the flesh, had to wrestle and battle his own struggles. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way like us. So Jesus had to stay connected to God, but then he surrounded himself with 12 men who were thirsty for God. We got to surround ourselves with brothers and sisters who are like us. Third, you need to read God's word and grow to be more like Jesus. You know why I memorize Proverbs 29, 11, Psalm 55, 22? Why I remember? It's because I want to be like Jesus deep down in my heart. The kids sing the song. We need to sing the song. If you're not actively trying to become like him, then what are you doing? You can't improve on yourself and just be like Jesus. That is a result of trying to be like Jesus. You become better. You become more spiritual. You become more loving. Because that's who Jesus is. When we try to be like Jesus, that takes effort. You have to be deliberate. You don't accidentally fall into Christ's likeness. That's why I hate that term, falling into sin. How do you fall into sin? It's not like falling on the ice outside or falling down a flight of steps. That's a mistake. You can't control the ice. You can control looking at porn. Oh, I fell into porn this week. What? So you mean to tell me that your hand fell out of your, off your lap, onto the dirt, and just fell onto the keys and the mouse and... What? Bro, I, I fell into immorality. How do you fall into immorality? Well, I met her online and, uh, you know, my friend introduced us and I just fell from there. I still don't... You get what I'm saying? It's planned. It's intentional. You want to do it. Confess. Confess it. Just be honest. But you got to be in God's word. It safeguards our heart. It's the only weapon we have against Satan. Number four, you need to have a ministry where you're using your talents to help other people. There's a reason God gave us our gifts, and it's not for ourselves. Our gifts are to serve. 
That's why God gave us the gifts that we have, is to serve others in the church and in our, in our communities. It's how people get to see the love of God. It's how people get to see the body of Christ. When we use the different gifts that he gives us, it reaches people where they're at. We have gifts that can't always be uh, uh, displayed in church, but you can use it in your community. Some of us are extremely hospitable, extremely loving, extremely friendly. That's a gift. You're not an extrovert because you chose to be. You're not intelligent because you chose to be. God gives us the capacity to be who we are, the ability to be who we are, and it's not for our personal gain. It's to help other people see the goodness of Christ Jesus. And number five, you need a mission in which you're sharing your faith. I don't care how you cut it. You cannot take away sharing your faith from discipleship. Some of us have settled with doing everything else. I'll come to church. I'll even go to midweek. I might even stroll into Bible talk. But sharing my faith, God's grace got me covered on that one. Got quiet. I've heard it all. Bro, I don't really like talking to strangers. Neither do I. But you know what? That's our mission. That's our mission. Somebody talked to you. You were a stranger. I don't know how they felt. I know the guy who reached out to me didn't want to talk to me. And I thank God to this day that he did. Bro, I struggle with this all my walk, all my life. Okay, well, you know what? It's time to stop struggling. It's time to start claiming victory. You can't be a victim your whole life. Especially when you got the power of Christ living in you. You know, the best way to conquer fear is to be courageous. And courage is not the absence of fear. It's action in despite of fear. I'm afraid. I'm intimidated. But I'm going to say it anyway. That's how the church gets built up. We can't not talk to people. We got to get past ourselves. We got to grow past our fears. Grow past the legalism in our lives. It's not just something Christians do. It's who Christians are. We share our faith because we're grateful for what Jesus has done for us. And we know that the only answer for the pain in their lives is God and the cross of Christ. You know, the starting point, I believe, is we have to remember how God feels about us. Did you know that God is hopelessly in love with you? Do you know that God is passionate about you? He made you to love and adore you. You were created to be the object of his affection. The more we understand how God is passionate about us, the more passionate we're going to be about God. When you forget how much God loves you, you start blowing him off. You start saying things like, you know what, it's over. I'm not even going to try. Or there's a good movie on TV tonight. I know I was going to read my Bible, but I don't want to miss this. And I don't have DVR, so this is my only chance to watch it. We start blowing God off of nonsense. I'm too tired. I got to get this done. Let me take this phone call. 
Let me send this text. Let me see what's going on with Trump. We start blowing God off of all sorts. Let me check my Twitter. Let me post one more thing to Facebook. Let me send one more Snapchat. And before you know it, hours have passed, and now your time with God has passed. How do you think God feels about that? How would you feel if you looked forward to spending time with someone and they didn't show up? And then the next day, you speak to them, and when they tell you why they didn't show up, it was because of some, well, you know what, man, I just, I just got totally distracted on the internet. I'm sorry, can we, can we hang out later? Or your wife gets all dolled up and she's ready to go out. You say you're going to take her out to a nice place and maybe a little dancing afterwards. And she's waiting and she's waiting and she's waiting. And, and then you, you finally strolling through the door. And you're like, what you all dressed up for? We had a date. Oh, you know what? I got so busy. I was talking to the brothers and, and you know, this one brother needed some help. And it just totally slipped my mind. How do we think God feels when we blow him off? Oh, he's God. He doesn't have feelings. Really? The last time I checked, Jesus wept over us. The fact that he had to send Jesus down in the first place is because of how his heart was stirred by the sin that overtook the world. If you want to know how much God loves you, the proof is in the cross. That's how passionate God is about his creation. I made you. I love you. And I'd rather die without you. I'd rather die than to live without you. That's how God feels about you. And when, you're, when, you, when you feel like you've lost that passion, you've got to remind yourself, you know what? God loves me. God loves me. And I'm going to do this because he loves me. That's what 1 John 4 talks about. We love because he first loved us. We go about our daily lives in darkness had God not loved you first. What's your, what's your solution to sin? What's your solution to the pain in the world? What's your solution to racial divide in the world? You have no plan. What are you going to march? Protests? How far is that going to get us? But let me tell you something. The love of God hits people at their core. It gets to the real problem. It gets to the hearts. And people need to know that God loves them just like we do. We're no different. We need to remember that God is passionately in love with me. And I can't blow it enough to change that. It, no, it doesn't matter how much you've sinned. If you repent, let it be because of that, because God loves you. Not because you're afraid of being pointed out or judged, but because God loves you. I'm going to change because God loved me first. You know, the most heartbreaking, well, let me ask you this, and then I will wrap this up. Do you know what the worst sin is for Christians? See, I believe it's not adultery. Some people might think murder. Some might think some sort of sexual perversion or sexual sin. 
God tells us what it is in Revelation 3. Look at Revelation 3. We'll wrap it up here. Revelation 3, verse 14 to 16. You guys still with me, right? God is so passionate about us. Revelation 3, verse 14, it says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the rule of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You know what's interesting about this? This is the only time I've read where Jesus said that he would spit us out. And the conditions are a lukewarm heart. Jesus tolerated prostitutes, thieves, murderers. But he said that he'll spit lukewarm Christians out. That kind of makes sense to me, though. Because you could see that a sinner who is unrepentant, at least there's a chance for them to come in hot when they come into contact with the the love of God. But man, how disappointed and heartbreaking it must be for God to have someone who has experienced that love, who has been showered by that love, who has been on the receiving end of all these blessings, all those many days of forgiveness, even when we didn't even realize we needed to be forgiven, all the prayers that we didn't even think about praying that the Spirit prayed on our behalf, every sin that we did not confess that Jesus prayed for us, and to be lukewarm in that kind of relationship, why would you not spit that out? That's like gum that's lost its flavor. You don't keep chewing it. Eventually, you spit it out. You know, I don't know where you're at and your passion for God. But God is like, look, I love you. I love you passionately. I'd rather die than to live without you. And you would treat me with a half heart? I don't deserve all of it. I'm not talking about 99.9% of it. I'm talking about all of it. This is why Jesus said, if you don't love me, you cannot be my disciple. This is why Jesus said, if you don't carry your cross daily and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Why? Because of this. When we become lukewarm, it becomes impossible to follow God with the same passion that we need to do his will, to return that love. You know, C.S. Lewis quotes, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Moderately important. If Jesus is God and he died and loved you that much, we owe him the rest of our lives. It should be most important. It should be most important. God deserves everything. He deserves our all. He deserves our absolute best efforts. You know, I, when I see sisters like Margaret Martinez rolling here, sisters like Edna Utak, 
sisters that come to church, our sister Lynn Cherry, I mean, people who anyone would give a pass. Anyone would, would, would say, you know, why don't you stay home? People with, with different mental illnesses who, who can't gather themselves enough to, to get past their day, who still find a way to make it to church. And yet, we have perfectly healthy Christians. We have to convince. We have to beg. We have to plead. We have to sit down and have conferences with to convince them to give their whole heart to God. It hurts me to even have to say that. Moderately important. What is discipleship in your life? See, the truth is, nobody's holding you back from being your best for God. Nobody. You can be as passionate for God as you want. You can dance like David. People thought David was crazy, but you know what? No one can question his zeal for God. He's like, Paul said, we are fools for Christ. Why? Because they were passionate. Paul got beaten up, stoned, dusted himself off, and went back into the city to finish his sermon. We had Christians and brothers and sisters do incredibly insane things. Why? Because of their passion for God. I think lukewarm Christians, back in Paul's days, those were the ones who got the evil eye. Those were the ones who were like, I can't believe you would live like that after what he's done for you. Come on. This is why we have to be spurred on towards love and good deeds. And that's not a gentle push either. Look up the word spur, spur. It's not gentle. And we've gotten too sensitive when it comes to being pushed out of our comfort zone to doing the right thing. We want people to understand our situation. I hear you. I understand. But let me tell you something. God loves you. And will God buy that excuse? Because if he wouldn't, then you shouldn't keep making it. I'm not saying you need to put on a cape and be superhero Christian. What I'm saying is give God all of your heart every day because he deserves it. You're as close to God as you choose to be. You can choose to have as much of God as you want. You can be as passionate for God as you want. Tonight, we're going to see some passionate, uh, I can't even say that name. But you know who I'm talking about. That other football team, but that guy. And the Atlanta Falcons. We're going to see some passionate people. They're going to eat that that, that, that chicken and, and, and wing flings and all that stuff passionately rooting for their team. I want to encourage you. Don't be more passionate about a Super Bowl than you are about your walk with God. Let's reignite our passion for God. Let's find balance. Let's use our gifts. Let's find a way to use our gifts. Let's get honest. Don't delay. Start today. Let's repent, let's get resolved, and let's do the things we did at first. I love you, and to God be the glory.